Good morning to you. Perhaps you heard the one about the little boy who lay frightened in his bed during a fierce summer thunderstorm. A particularly close lightning flash followed by a particularly deafening thunderclap and the boy called from his room, Daddy, I'm scared. Now his father, not wanting to get up out of bed, called back across the house, Don't worry, son, God loves you and he'll take care of you. A few moments passed of silence and then there was the little boy's voice again, I know God loves me, but right now I need somebody with skin on him. <laughs> and so it is with doctrine. There are powerful truths of Scripture, but sometimes they can seem more theoretical and ethereal instead of practical and personal. And as we end our time in the book of Esther, I'd like us to pause and ponder how the people in this story sort of put skin on other Scriptures. The book of Esther is doctrine incarnated. In fact, that's the name of our sermon today, Doctrine Incarnated. As you turn in the Word of God to page 518 in the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, we're going to take one last look at the book of Esther, and primarily we'll be looking at it from other Scriptures initially, and how Esther draws light and life and living color to those Scriptures. So as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You today to speak to us from Your Word. We invite You today to help us to see Esther, a book that we probably started, many of us, a few Sundays back with a, with a fair amount of, of a misunderstanding. The book was somewhat dark and smoky, and we didn't really know how to see our way. And You have been gracious week in and week out of, of putting us under the text and bringing the text to life. And so now we pray that a book that was once foggy and murky, that now hopefully is much clearer, that the clarity and, and uh, brightness of this book would shine into other areas of Scripture, bringing them to life, that we would see the intersection between the book of Esther and so many other truths in Scripture. Would you please drive home your word with power this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we can see today in the book of Esther, if you go back, and I've read through the book of Esther over and over and over again in our previous Sundays. And so I'm assuming you're, you're well-versed and well-steeped in Esther. And so let's take Esther as a launching pad for how she brings illumination to the rest of Scripture. The first thing we see today in Doctrine Incarnated is that from the book of Esther's characters, we see the book of Proverbs exemplified. And so what I'd like for you to do is, is leave your thumb in Esther and then go uh, a little bit farther in Scripture to page 668 of the Pew Bible. So you're going to the right. And we're going to go to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. And we're going to start by seeing how Esther's characters bring the book of Proverbs to life. Now, the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. So when you get to the book of Proverbs, you go about a third of the way into it, you'll get to Proverbs chapter 10. And I'd like you to start at chapter 10 and verse 28. Proverbs 10 and verse 28. And we're going to start from 1028 and go forward in the book of Proverbs, seeing how the book of Esther brings those Proverbs to life. And if you look in your bulletins, there's a lot of Scriptures listed. And so you can go back and you can refer to them later. So the Bible says in Proverbs 10.28 that the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectations of the wicked will perish. 
The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectations of the wicked will perish. Now, think about that in light of the book of Proverbs. Uh, Haman, the haughty, was very naughty. And he expected to see his rival impaled on that 75-foot-high gallows he built. But you know what? That expectation perished with Haman, didn't it? It didn't work out the way he thought. Instead, Esther 8.15, Esther 8.15 tells us the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a fast and a holiday. Now friends, if you are in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is in you. Amen? If your hope is in Christ, then Christ can bring you joy no matter whatever your pressing present position is today. Because Proverbs says the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectations of the wicked will perish. Now from Esther, two verses down. So go a little farther down uh, and, and look at, uh, at Proverbs 10, and I believe it's verse 30. The righteous will never be removed. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. Haman sought to exterminate all the Jews in a single day. But instead, he and his ten sons, they, sung, they swung from those gallows that he had hastily had built. For the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. Drop down to Proverbs 11.3. We're going to see Proverbs 11.3 come to life in our story as well. In Proverbs 11.3, the Bible says, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Now think about this. Mordecai was saved in part because of his integrity, because of his righteousness. Uh, Mordecai was saved in part because he saved the king. He thwarted an assassination. He reported all of the gossip that was surrounding a coup attempt. And he was seemingly unrewarded initially for his loyalty. He did the right thing, and he didn't seem to get anywhere for it. Uh, and so Haman, however, was a very different character. Uh, Haman manipulated the king all throughout the first half of the story into thinking that his loyal subject, Mordecai, was insurrectious. And that was utterly fictitious, wasn't it? It was a lie. It was a scheme. It was a, a deceitful way to try and move things forward. Uh, Haman was so cocky. He was so utterly convinced that he could secure the execution of Mordecai that he built a monument to his own bravado. He demanded it be erected in just one night. But when the structure saw its very first day, Haman saw his last. Haman saw his last. Because, the Bible says, the integrity of the upright guides them. But the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Now, we also see Proverbs 11.6 in living color in the book of Esther. Proverbs 11.6. Proverbs 11.6 says, the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. Uh, Mordecai's fidelity and Esther's faith delivered them. 
But Haman's arrogance and his utter hatred led to his own humiliation and his own execution. Why? For the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. Uh, so we see in Esther the truth of Proverbs 11.8. And you can just walk through the book of Proverbs and you're going to see more and more and more of these points in Esther. Uh, in Proverbs 11.8, the Bible says the righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked walks into it instead. Have you read the book of Esther? <laughs> the, the righteous is delivered from trouble. Is that not the whole point of the book? And what happens to Haman? He walks into it instead. Who swings from the gallows built? By Haman. It was Haman. On the day, on the day, on the day that God's people, the Bible says, were to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. It's a pretty all-encompassing day. Instead, the Bible says that their enemies, and here's what it says, were destroyed, were killed, were annihilated. For the righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walk into it instead. And so we see the truth of Proverbs 11.10. Proverbs 11.10. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, the Bible says. And wicked, when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. The Bible says in Proverbs 11.10, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Now, Esther 8 tells us when Mordecai's edict of defense was uttered, when Mordecai gives the order countermanding the earlier edict of wicked Haman. In chapter 8, the Bible says the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whenever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Because... When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Equally, we see from Esther, we see Proverbs 12.7. Turn to Proverbs 12.7. You're going to see that come to life. Doctrine incarnated in the book of Esther. In Proverbs 12.7, the Bible says, the wicked are overthrown and they are no more. But the house of the righteous will stand. The wicked are overthrown and they are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Now, now, Haman and his household hung on his own gallows. The ten sons that he bragged about swung with him. All of his vast wealth went to Esther, who handed it to Mordecai, Haman's mortal enemy. Haman's position as number two in the kingdom and the king's signet ring slipped off of his finger and fell to the man that Haman hated. For eventually and inevitably, the wicked are overthrown and are no more. But the house of the righteous will stand. In Mordecai, we see the truths of Proverbs 12 and verse 23. Proverbs 12 and verse 23. The Bible says, A prudent man conceals knowledge but the heart of fools proclaims folly. The prudent man doesn't always say everything he knows to everyone he ever runs into. But rather, the prudent man conceals knowledge and the heart of the fool proclaims folly. So, so if you look at the story, you're going to see that Mordecai mourns, but he kind of keeps his cards close to his chest. He, he's very 
tactful and tactical in what he reveals and when. He strategically divulges information such as Esther's ethnicity only shrewdly and judiciously. But you compare that to Haman. And Haman in the story, well, he's bragging about his position and he's bragging about his possessions and he's bragging about his presumption of being able to be taken to the queen's meal with only the king and how he's going to kill his enemy the next day with certainty. Do you see a difference between the the carefulness of the prudent man with words and the foolishness of the fool and the flow? Of his words. Proverbs 12, 23, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Proverbs 13, 21. Proverbs 13, 21 is also doctrine incarnated in the book of Esther. Proverbs 13, 21 says this: disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Disaster pursues sinners but the righteous are rewarded with good. Proverbs 14.7 says this, A man of quick temper acts foolishly, but a man of evil devices is hated. Alright, so think back to our story. Think back to Esther chapter 7. And the king's eunuch is there. And he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't skip a beat. Uh, When Haman's evil devices are exposed, this man named Harbona helpfully tells the king, oh, you know what? Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, well, it's standing at Haman's house. It's 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang Haman on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared For Mordecai, do you know why? For a man of evil, devices is hated. That that eunuch who wasn't Jewish, who didn't have any part in the story, he had had enough of Haman's haughty hatred. He had had enough of Haman's double dealing and duplicity. He had had enough of Haman being this horrible person. And when the day came for there was an opportunity to put Haman on the hangman, Harbona didn't miss it. Do you know why? Because a man of evil devices is hated. Who are you at work? Who are you in your neighborhood? A man of evil devices is hated. Esther chapters 6 through 10, we see the, the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 14:35 come to life. In chapter 6 through 10, Proverbs 14:35 says this: A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on the one who acts shamefully. You see, Mordecai in the story, he does his job. Even when he's elevated and celebrated and put on the king's horse and and Haman is forced to pronounce how wonderful he is, after riding the royal steed, what does he do? He just goes back to his job. He just goes back to the gate and he goes back to being a low-level magistrate. He doesn't puff up and inflate the way Haman does in our story. Haman, however, the scheming, the preening, the self-serving fool, well, he incurs the king's wrath when his shameful acts are ultimately discovered and uncovered. Which brings us to Proverbs 16, 14. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Let's stop for a second. We don't have kings, but we have bosses, we have employers, we have the state trooper that we chat with on the side of the road after he's discovered our driving doesn't quite meet the New Jersey regulation. 
Proverbs 16, 14, insert the leader, a king's wrath is a messenger of death. And a wise man will find out how to provoke it. Find out how to work around it. Find out how to undermine our employee. Do you see what I'm saying? No. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Mordecai saw danger, and he took shelter. Haman fell upon Esther only to make the king all the matter. As you deal with your boss this week, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Do you put out the fire at work? Or are you the gasoline for the fire at work? Because the king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. Perhaps the overarching truth in the book of Esther is Proverbs 16.18. Proverbs 16.18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Friends, is there a more climactic climb down or a more delicious irony in all of Scripture than Haman the horrible getting his just desserts in the book of Esther? Is there? Uh, the, the, the Feast of Purim. Purim, uh, which is the pagan Persian word for random. It's the word for lot. It's the word for lot, and a lot is random. This random lot that superstitious, wicked Haman throws, and he looks to the lot to, to tell him what day to, would be auspicious according to the celestial uh, movements that, that he should then have his enemy's fate sealed. The day he expected to be the victor was the day that God's divine retribution came on his own house because of his haughty miscalculation. And so from Purim, we see Proverbs 16.33, the Bible says the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is from the Lord. There are random things that are not random, they're sovereign. They look to us like they're random. They do. I got this job and not that job. I live here and not there. Uh, this thing worked out for me this way and I ended up doing... But, but there is a sovereign king who's moving things because the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Haman's rapid reversal and his total unravel is of his ample, boastful prattle brings Proverbs 19.12 and Proverbs uh, 22 to life. Proverbs 19.12 uh, says this. Proverbs 19.12 says, A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion. But his favor is like the dew on the grass. So I've got a couple of people that have been around lions. I'm looking over in this Zimbabwe section. And if you've ever been around a lion, now he can be in a cage, and in Zimbabwe, it's chain length that's clearly not high enough. That's how they do it at Ballybong, right? And there are lions in there, and if the lion wants to, you know, and they bring the Land Rover over, and they rev the Land and you hope that it would go back. But if you just happen to be walking by and you're not really paying attention and the lion decides it doesn't need a Land Rover and it just goes roar, well, that's a day you remember. It's a day you remember. It's a day that... Yeah. And the Bible says that it's like the roar. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion but his favor is like dew on the grass. Now that isn't a one-off sentiment. In Proverbs 22, 
The Bible says the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. Hey, if you poke a bear, it may not work out well for you. I say that because I meet Christians. I counsel Christians. I have people in my office who come to me and they go, oh, Satan is just hammering me. And I listen to the story and it really seems like, you know what, you spent your life with a stick poking a bear. You did it at work. You did it with your finances. You did it in all these areas. And one day the bear came to eat you. And you act as though the world is coming against you, but perhaps it's just gravity starting to catch up with you. If you jump off a cliff and you're not the roadrunner, beep, beep, you're going to fall. Do you follow? Maybe the world isn't conspiring against you. Maybe you're conspiring against the God of this world and how you're living your life. And if so, gravity will catch up with you. Haman thought he was too clever by half. My Zimbabwean friends know that phrase, too clever by half. Haman thought he was too clever by half. He thought he had the whole world figured out. He thought he could manipulate the king. He thought he could do anything. He thought he was too clever by half. But God was going to reduce him to just a fraction. And his cunning calculations were going to leave him an irrational number. Because Proverbs 21.2 is unbendingly true. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. You know, Haman can huff and he can puff and he can brag about all of his stuff, but Mordecai and Esther, along with the rest of God's people, they look to the Lord and to the Lord's deliverance. And that personifies Proverbs 21-29. A wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. A wicked man can put on a bold face. He can puff, huff and puff and do all that stuff. But the upright, he gives thought to his ways and he considers the Lord in the equation. Now, now all of the book of Esther leads us to Proverbs 26.27. So turn to Proverbs 26.27. And I want to encourage you to think about in the book of Esther, you might want to write Proverbs 26.27, big, bold, straight, and maybe even in all capital letters across chapter 1 of page 1 of the book of Esther, Proverbs 26.27. The Bible says this, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. My wife and I have quoted that verse to each other many, many times. When people have devised wicked, evil schemes to block the work of the Lord, to block the unity of the church, to block the progress of the Word of God, and we've watched people stand up and they roll a stone, hoping that it will crush the work of God or the worker of God. And we have had to go to God and pray. And I'm going to tell you, there's a gap between when the stone is thrown and the time it rolls back on the wicked person. And we've waited sometimes a decade for God to reveal what man tried to conceal. But the truth sets you free. We read that proverb again. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who started rolling. If you're doing the right thing for Jesus, everyone else might not always know you're doing the right thing for Jesus. But Jesus knows, and you know, and you keep doing the right thing, and one day, God will call the right to be right. It may not be till heaven, but it will be because we have a just God in heaven. He whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone comes back on him who started it rolling. Hey, who decided to destroy who? Haman decided to destroy the Jews. How was he going to do it? 
in one day, there would be a massacre. And his arch enemy would swing from a 75-foot high gallows. And in the providence of God, when God stepped in and said, I've had enough of Haman, he's all through the story. He's ascended. He's gotten to a position where he has possessions and power. He has everything. I'm going to reduce him to nothing. And in one day, he took it all away. And he and his, his ten sons swung from the gallows built for the enemies. That's how God can work. He can do anything He wants to do. And in history, He's had many times where He's wanted to do it in a way that showed He was God. Clearly, from Esther's characters, we can see the book of Proverbs exemplified. If you haven't been in Proverbs in a while, go back to Proverbs. They're so, so practical. So, so powerful. And so, so necessary. God's wisdom is not just proverbially true. It is providentially walking around you in the facts of history in the Esther story. And the wisdom of Proverbs is walking around you at work tomorrow as well. God's Word is still true, even if people say that isn't the case. The book of Proverbs tells you, are you listening to the voice of wisdom calling out in the streets, are you at the city gates of God's Word attentive to her cry? Or are you foolishly doing what seems right in your own eyes? Now, proverbial wisdom puts skin on our stories in the book of Esther. But number two, we're going to start to see that the book of Esther also sort of has typology. In, in some of the central characters, we're going to see uh, types of Christ and types of the Antichrist. And so I want you to see a little bit of that with me now. Number two, from Haman, from wicked Haman, we see glimpses of the coming Antichrist. From, from Haman, we see glimpses of the coming Antichrist. In Esther 6-7, the Bible uses the phrase, this wicked Haman. Now I'm told that phrase, that name Haman, uh, that phrase right there, grammatically, if you add all those words up, you get the number 666 in the original Hebrew. And that is the number of the beast in Revelation 13-18. Now I'm not big into numerology, so I don't normally go there, but it's kind of interesting because almost everyone who's a scholar sees in Haman a picture of the coming Antichrist, and it's really interesting that his name adds up to, to the Antichrist. It seems like God is making a point there. Four times the Word of God says, Haman hated the Jews. He hated the Jews. He hated the Jews. He hated the Jews. Four times. And it's offering another glimpse into the Antichrist because the Antichrist will be marked by a hatred of the Jewish people. Uh, the Bible makes that clear in the book of Revelation. Uh, Haman was given great authority in our story. Uh, he was promoted rapidly in our story. In Esther 3, the Bible says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamaditha, and he advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, if you go to Revelation 13... Revelation 13, mirror that to Esther 3. In Revelation 13, the Bible speaks about the dragon, which in Revelation is in reference to Satan himself. The dragon gave the beast, that is the Antichrist, his power and his throne and great authority. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Uh, we see also that Haman's pride prefigures the pride of the coming Antichrist. In Esther chapter 5, we learn that Haman 
boasted to them about his vast wealth, about his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the nobles and others officials. And in the book of Daniel, speaking of the Antichrist, in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist is said to have a mouth uttering great boasts. Revelation 13 says the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. My friend, Satan's masterpiece of a beast will appear indestructible. People will be so overawed that they will worship this thing. But you know what the Bible says? When Christ returns, Christ shall destroy him swiftly and suddenly and utterly. Here is this invincible, satanically empowered, apex enemy of God. And when the Son of God comes on the scene, he falls as feeble as a toddler against Mike Tyson. So we see in our story how Haman, the seemingly second most powerful man to the most powerful man in the world, utterly falls in one day. We're not as secure as we think we are unless our security comes from the Lord. Amen? What are you building your life on? Number three, from Esther, we see glimpses of the coming Christ. From Esther's story, from Esther herself, we see glimpses of the coming Christ. Esther is a woman in two worlds. On one hand, she's she's fully Jewish, but on the other hand, where is she dwelling? She's dwelling in the den of sin. She's dwelling in in the pagan Persian palace. And so our Lord Jesus is is fully God and fully holy, and yet He came in flesh and He dwelt amongst sinful men, didn't He? He was in two worlds. He Himself from heaven and yet walking amongst the earth in this broken world, tempted in all points, and yet He was without sin. We see Esther leave the comforts of the palace. She leaves all of her position and possessions, and she leaves it to try to save her people. And so Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but rather He made Himself nothing. He he took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness, and being found in the appearances of man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a... Esther was providentially placed for her people's deliverance before there was a clear need for it. God put Esther in the king's palace. He put Esther as the king's wife before Haman ascended. Before Haman decided to kill everybody. Do you see that? Esther was put there before In the providence of God, she was placed in a position where she was needed before the need arrived. Revelation 13.8 says, the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, friends. That's how beautiful Jesus is. The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8. That God had pre-positioned and pre-planned our redemption before the first sin was set by the first sinner. Before sin ever entered in. Before Satan ever tempted. Jesus in love as the eternal Son of God awaited, and the Bible says at just the right time. While we were yet sinners, God sent His Son to die for us. 
In Esther 8.17, the Bible tells us as a result of Esther's courageous actions that many pagans became believers. We saw that last week, that here's this crazy story of all this wickedness and nastiness and difficulty, but what's the result? The result was random evangelism. A great number of people began to worship the one true God. They saw God in the story, and they wanted that God to be the God of their story. Esther 8.17, in like manner... Jesus' righteous life, Jesus' sinless death, Jesus' victorious resurrection, you know what the Bible says? It sets the captives free. The Bible says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Uh, Jesus in John 15, he, he, He searches for the lost coin. Friends, if you spend as many hours as it took in the story to find the coin that was lost in the story, you'll find the time was worth more than the coin. It wasn't the value of the coin. It was the heart of the searcher that reached out for that which wasn't worthy. Uh, Jesus rescues the lost sheep. He got himself in trouble. He left the other sheep. He went and did his own thing. He was silly and stupid and knew he shouldn't. And yet, the shepherd leaves the 99 in danger of other predation to save the one who was certain to die. And then he restores the lost son. John 15, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Do you know the lost son? He takes all that the Father had gifted him and says, I'm just going to squander it to have a great party. And then there's the hangover after the party. And it gets so bad that he's with the pagans and he's with the pigs that he shouldn't be with. And he's willing to eat the pea pods of the pigs. He reaches a place at the bottom where he says, I I just can't do this anymore. I'll go back and be a slave. Because the slaves eat better than, than the pigs with the pea pods. And when he reaches that point, what does the Father say? Well, there's my son, Pigpen, who's now my slave. Go clean out the stalls. No, he takes off his royal robe and he gives him his ring and he slaughters the fattened calf and he invites the son back in as a son. Despite all of the squander. Do you understand the love of God? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. From Esther, we see three days of interceding via fasting. She has all the Jews pray and fast, and she has all of her attendants pray and fast. And she sees that all that interceding, what does it lead to? It leads to salvation. Hey, in the Lord Jesus, we have a king. And you know what the Bible says he does right now? He lives to make intercession for us. Right now, when you are sitting there and you're in your challenge and you're in your problem and and nobody else in the world understands, And you pray in the darkness of your room, by yourself, and no one else knows, the Son of God intercedes with you, for you. When you don't even know how to pray anymore, you just cry. Do you understand the love of God? You are not alone. You are a child of the King. Friends, in in Esther, we, we can praise Esther, but in Jesus we can never cease praising. Amen? Do you understand the Jesus that you have access to? Uh, So that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining like the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we... You'll never run out of how amazing it is when you see amazing Jesus in living color. If you think He's interesting, if you think He's intriguing, if you think He's fascinating, you're saying that He's beautiful when you see Him. You will never cease to be able to say His praise 
Not out of duty, not out of drudgery, but out of delight. Not because it's Sunday morning and they're singing and i got to play along, but because your soul rises up because you've seen something wonderful, something beautiful, something undeniable, and you will do what you were built to do. You will worship one who's worthy. Wow, do you know your king? Not only do we see glimpses of Jesus in Esther, but we even see glimpses of Jesus in the pagan Persian potentate Ahasuerus. He's a messed up guy in our story, but we get little glimpses of a greater king through a miserable king. Wow, God is amazing. Uh, No one could be in the king's presence in our story unbidden, amen? If you came to the king and he hadn't summoned you, the only way that you wouldn't be instantly exterminated in the Persian world was what? The king had to extend his scepter. His golden scepter would reach out to you and you had to reach out and touch it. You'd reach down, take a knee, and you'd touch that. There was only one way not to die. I want to come to the king. There's only one person in the world who can solve my problem. It's the king. And I go to the king, and I hope he wants to listen. And if he does, he extends the scepter. And then I can't say, well, I'm not touching that. I'm not going out. You have to do it the king's way. There was a way. There was a way to have access to a wicked king. How much greater is Jesus, friends? Been the most powerful man in the ancient world. Ahasuerus ruled a kingdom from from Pakistan to Sudan, from what the Bible calls from from Ethiopia uh, all the way to India, uh, from the east to the west. It, it It covered two continents. It spanned a lot of kilometers. But Jesus' kingdom covers every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it's as far as the east is from the west. It's an unending, eternal kingdom of God. You were never certain if you went before the pagan, if you could enter into his presence. But let me tell you what Hebrews 4 tells you. You might want to write it down. Hebrews 4 says this, because of the shed blood of Jesus, we can approach the throne of the King of Kings, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Some translations say boldness, not arrogance, but with a confident boldness because of Jesus so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. When you're in that room alone, not only is Jesus interceding on His throne, but He is not going to say, get away from me, you put yourself here and I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm tired of you. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. And in our sin... He receives us because we have access to the King of Kings through Jesus, not us. Since this is true, since God's scepter is extended to us by grace, why are we so loath to reach out and make our requests to this King? You know John Newton, right? We quoted John Newton, Amazing Grace, a little bit earlier, the 10,000 years thing. He had another hymn. I've never heard anyone sing it. Maybe you're old enough. Maybe you heard it. Jerry, you probably made us sing it. We forgot it. Jerry sings from the hymnal no one's ever heard. We have one downstairs, and he picks songs the songs we don't know. But you did do a breasted assurance. We knew this one. So if you come to the Wednesday night prayer meeting, you can like awkwardly look back at, do you know this one? I don't know this one. And Jerry's like, bah, he's there. And it's an experience. Come Wednesday night, 7:30. John Newton has this hymn, but we tend to forget it. I won't sing it because I can't sing. Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. 
He Himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for His grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let's bring some large petitions to the king. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are amazing, and Your grace is amazing, and Your Son is amazing, and Your blood is amazing, and it gives us access to the very throne of grace. We can enter into the holy of holies, though we are not holy, though we are sinners, because You look at us and You see the righteousness of Christ that's been put upon us, been imputed upon us, been, been credited to our account because of Jesus' incredible voluntary submission to destruction for our salvation. Lord, we want to be a church that brings large requests to You. Not in some profane, self-serving way. The Scriptures say we have not, one, because we ask not, and two, because when we ask, we ask for ourselves on our own greedy things. We're not asking for Lear jets and Corvettes. We're asking, Lord, for Your Word to go forth from Calvary with power. We're asking, Lord, for Your Son to be lifted high that You might draw many to Him. We're asking that You would make us a kingdom-impacting church and not simply a cozy empire-building church. That You would enable us to send out pastors and missionaries and parachurch workers. That we would raise up leaders. That You would take um, ain'ts and make them saints. That You would take saints and make them servants. That You would take servants and make them leaders. And that You would allow us to send those leaders around the world for Your glory and not ours. We ask that You would allow this to be a church where the Gospel continues to be preached faithfully and biblically until Jesus returns. Lord, we don't know if that's Your will, but we pray that You might do that, Lord. We know there aren't many churches that are 100 years old that still preach biblical Jesus. And we are but one generation, one pastor, one bad choice away from the Gospel going away. And then we are no good to anyone. Uh, we are no longer hot. We become cold. But Lord, it is so much easier not to be hot nor cold. We know that cold is wrong and hot is uncomfortable, so we want to be lukewarm. But Lord, You speak of that church being the one You want to spit out of Your mouth. That You're not content for us to be comfortable. You want us to be biblical. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that Your Spirit would convict us, that it would urge us, that it would woo us, that it would draw us, that it would call us. We invite You to, to reach into our lives and see the beauty and power and magnitude of Jesus, that we would be a church on fire, that, that like the church in the book of Acts, when we, when we face obstacles and difficulties that our first inclination isn't, Lord, make us comfortable, it's Lord, make us bold. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would recalibrate us into kingdom effectiveness. We pray, Lord, as we, we leave Esther and we move into Nehemiah in a couple weeks, that as we walk through Nehemiah, that we would see how you accomplish things in Nehemiah's day that the people of God were not able to accomplish for a hundred plus years. And may we be the kind of people, may we be in our generation of people that accomplish much and build into others, that our children and grandchildren, that we would be a 2 Timothy 2-2 church, that we would uh, entrust these things to others who would go on and disciple others, that there might be, should Jesus delay in His return, three more generations of white-hot, fervent Gospel people emanating from Calvary for Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.